unionization really helped musicians make a living as an orchestral musician. So once that got underway, and Ixnam was founded in 1962 and had a big role in this, pretty much every major orchestra in the country uh, unionized, got a union contract, and now it's a, it's a real living. It is October 19th, 2020, and you are listening to episode 17 of the Candid Clarinetist podcast. What's going on, everybody? Sam Rothstein here, acting principal clarinet with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and host of the Candid Clarinetist podcast. Thanks so much for tuning into last week's episode with Katie McGinnis, Vice President of Artistic Planning with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. She gave a very detailed breakdown of the amount of organization that goes into planning an orchestra season, so definitely make a point to check out that episode if you haven't already. You can find download links to all of our podcast episodes and more information about myself and the podcast by visiting candidclarinetistpodcast.com. Also, I wanted to mention that I posted a new video on our YouTube channel this last week where I demonstrate an excerpt from Ralph Schiano's new book, Little Scores for Audition Success. This is a great new resource for clarinetists looking to improve their auditioning skills and find creativity in standard orchestral excerpts. So be sure to check out his book and the example that I posted on YouTube. Once again, you can find a link to our YouTube channel at candidclarinetistpodcast.com. If you have not already, take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on whatever your podcasting platform of choice is. You're not going to want to miss next week's episode with Steve Williamson, principal clarinetist of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. As a subscriber, you will receive first access to this episode and all of our episodes, so make sure to be subscribed. On the podcast today, I've invited Chicago-based attorney Kevin Case to join me. Kevin Case is the International Conference of Symphony and Opera Musicians General Counsel and has represented the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra musicians for the last few collective bargaining agreements. He also represents many musicians' collectives throughout the country, and I'm looking forward to chatting with him about his experiences. Thanks so much for being a part of the podcast, Kevin. Good to be here. Yeah, it's going to be, I think, very illuminating for our listeners to uh, sort of hear what you do and, and, and why all this is very important to us musicians and orchestras in general. So let's just give a real baseline uh, perspective. Can you just explain uh, what a collective bargaining agreement is and why it's so important uh, to how orchestras work and operate? Okay, yeah, it's probably helpful to give a little bit of an overview of how employment laws work. I mean, real brief kind of thumbnail sketch, sort of like the default rule when you are an employee is your at-will employee, which means that you can be let go for any reason at any time, or any reason that doesn't violate anti-discrimination laws, but you don't have a guarantee of continued employment. So if you have an employment contract though, for a specified period of time that takes you out of at-will status, in a union workplace, that contract is the collective bargaining agreement. So it's an agreement that applies to all of the employees in the workplace and it gives them job security, and it sets forth equal terms and conditions of employment for everybody in the in the bargaining unit. And for orchestras, this is particularly important because if you think back to uh, well, we, we consider the bad old days, mm-hmm. you know, 100 years or 80 years or so ago, where musicians were at will employees and they played for an orchestra, and there were really no codified hiring practices. So it was a lot based on who you know and that kind of thing. And then once he got the job, he didn't really have all that much security. 
you know, so it was not a great living. Um, but unionization really helped um, musicians make a living as an orchestral musician. So once that got underway, and Ixnam was found in 1962 and had a big role in this, um, pretty much every major orchestra in the country uh, unionized, got a union contract, and now it's a, it's a real living. Right. You can pursue this. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's an art. You're pursuing this art. Yet you can also make a living at it because you have security, you have benefits, you know that you're going to be OK. And you're not just basically one day away from being thrown out on the street. Right. Yeah. So it's it's a really effective tool for um, orchestras. And the benefit of that, of course, is not just for the musicians, but for the orchestra itself, because now you have a group of the best musicians and they work together and they, they play together for years and years. There's really no coincidence that with the you know, greater unionization of orchestras, the quality of the orchestras really took off. I mean, the, the playing now is just unbelievably good. Mm-hmm. You know, you got, you know, so many orchestras in the U.S. that just sound magnificent you compare that to you know 70 80 years ago there's no comparison right and i think that's especially noticeable um with the small orchestras uh and not just uh yeah. it, you know the smaller to mid-range orchestras you know because you always have the uh, the chicago's and the cleveland's but even now like you know your uh milwaukee symphony or indianapolis symphony you know not to draw any comparisons but the level that they're playing at you wouldn't even dream of that you know 30 40 50 years ago in uh, in even the major cities. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, the orchestras that I, I work with where we, you know, we've gotten the pay scale is uh, we've tried to make as much progress as we can, but it's still not that much. Yet you listen to this orchestra and it's like, oh my God, these guys should be getting 300,000 a year. You know, they're that <laughs> <wish>. good. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the thing. It's no, no musician's ever going to be rich doing this. Um, but you know, having some security so that you can pursue your passion and still be able to raise a family and buy a house is, you know, a pretty important thing. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, a lot of that is it kind of in jeopardy right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, going back to your point of like sort of the good old days, I, I remember there's like a, I've heard a number of stories about like Toscanini with the NBC Symphony Orchestra and he would just like get mad and fire someone like randomly, you know, in the middle of rehearsal. And I think, um, by what you're explaining, what, what I understand, obviously, uh, having gone through a couple of negotiations with you is, um, basically that you, you can't really do that anymore with these collective bargaining agreements because there's language built into them that prevents that kind of behavior. Yeah. Orchestra members eventually get tenure in their jobs. And there's usually a path to that that's laid out. I mean, it, it actually, it starts with the audition process, which has been made much more fair than it used to be because in most orchestras, at least a portion of the audition is behind a screen, so it's blind. And these days, more and more orchestras are having the entire process behind a screen, you know, to try to advance diversity and inclusion efforts. Um, so that it's a much fairer process than it used to be. Whereas before, it might be like you you hung out with Tuscanini in his dressing room and had a drink, and he likes you, so you're in, right. <laughs> you know, or however. Um, so you know, it starts with an objective process there. And then you're probationary for a certain amount of time to see that, you know, how you're working with your colleagues in the orchestra. And then if you get tenure, that's it. Then you cannot be 
um, fired except for either misconduct under regular you know, principles of just cause if you really behave poorly or through an artistic non-renewal process, which is very structured sort of like the flip side of the audition tenure process. It's a very structured process with appeals along the way so that nobody can get fired just because the conductor says, ah, I don't like the way this guy looks or I think they're too old. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if they want to do that, there's a process they have to go through and it's a rigorous process and it's there to protect the musicians and basically just to protect the, the fairness for the entire institution. Yeah, and that's uh, those kind of things are really important. I think, uh, especially um, nowadays, and and it sort of eliminates this kind of like favoritism or bias, or it, it prevents uh, you know a new conductor from coming in and sort of bringing their own people and all that stuff. So it's 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 all important protections that are built into the CBA. Um, so can you explain a little bit sort of what what you bring to this process as as a, an attorney? I'm not is would it be safe to say that you're a labor attorney? Would that be like your specialty? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So can you can you explain sort of like what your role is in administering and negotiating these collective bargaining agreements? Sure. So you know, each orchestra is represented by um, a, a, a union local, usually an American Federation of Musicians local, and they're the legal bargaining representative. However, each orchestra also elects a committee from among its members, and that committee works with the local and negotiates these collective bargaining agreements, You know, whether it's an initial one for an orchestra that's just organized or successor agreements. Um, and it's pretty complicated. Um, you know, these these agreements are you know sixty to one hundred pages long because they cover a lot of ground. Yeah. And so these negotiations are, they're, they're, you know, it's, it's really too much for people to do on their own most of the time. They really prefer to have a negotiator with them, and so that's where I I step in and, you know, part of my time is spent negotiating terms. But, you know, much more of the time is spent with the committee and trying to help them kind of hone their goals, what they're looking for, what they want to see, what they can't accept, what they're willing to accept and building consensus among them and, you know, hashing that out and then hashing out the terms with management. Um, sometimes the process is, goes fairly smoothly. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, I mean, it's, it's an industry where um, there there's a certain amount of tension because no matter you know, how good these musicians are or how well that they're paid under their CBA, they're, they're really never paid enough, <laughs> right? If, if you look in the abstract, the amount of skill, the amount of training, the amount of work that goes into being a musician, I mean, they should be paid like athletes, but of course they're not. And so they're underpaid in every orchestra, even the top ones, they're underpaid. However, the money's not really there you right. know, to pay them like athletes because, you know, the the orchestras are nonprofit institutions and government support for the arts is largely dried up. So they rely on ticket sales and uh, donations. And there's a there's a finite limit to to that. So. You know, you have a limited pool of resources available and musicians who are worth a lot more than what's available to pay them. So sometimes these negotiations get very contentious, very difficult. And I do my best to try to um, find ways to reach an agreement. And I, you know, if, if there's if there's a wall we're butting our heads against, I try to find a way to get around the wall. Mm hmm. 
And I think that uh, you make an important point, which is that a, not a lot of people realize that like orchestras do not make money from concerts. They, I mean, unless it's like a truly special event or a special occasion, any orchestra that puts on a concert is going to be losing money on that concert. And I think that it's different from like, like you said, sports and athletes, because these sports, uh, you know, leagues have billion dollar contracts with TVs and advertisers and stuff. And orchestras just don't have that kind of financial support. You know, maybe with you and I working together, we can get to that point at some point, you know, <laughs> we, we can, we can sign that, uh, you know, $3 billion deal with ABC to, to live stream concerts. But, you know, that's a little farther down the road, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that's really important that, um, that you mentioned that like the musicians aren't paid enough, but also like there's this opposite force of like, there's not all this money coming in. So it's kind of like, what's the best way that we can come to a, an agreement in the middle. Um, and I think that's really where you help with that is like, okay, you know, you've seen pretty much everything at this point, I imagine. And so you can take your expertise and then delve into the sort of legal language of all the stuff that goes on and, 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 uh, you know, the negotiating tactics and all that stuff. And I think that's, that's where your value comes in if I'm not misspeaking. Well, yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's what I try for. And then ultimately you get an agreement and you try to draft the language that's clear enough so that there's no disputes down the road over what something means. There's no ambiguity. It's just it sets forth the rules and everybody works under them. And, you know, you, you go on with the business of the orchestra. It, unfortunately, that's not always the case. Sometimes there there are disputes that come up and you know, I, I, I come in at those points as well when, you know, there's a just a genuine dispute over what the contract language means. And, you know, we try to resolve that. So, you know, there's always questions that come up even between the negotiations and issues that, that go on. You know, so I, I do my best to help resolve those as well. Yeah, absolutely. So can you uh, sort of delve into what we've touched on a, a few things, but uh Obviously, salary is one of them, but what other kinds of things are negotiated into these CBA agreements? Okay, so yeah, besides salary, there's benefits, of course. You know, health insurance is a huge matter of importance for musicians mm-hmm. that people don't often realize just the, the physical aspect of playing and the potential for injury from it. Um, because, it, you know, the, the muscles, the fine muscles that you use, the positions you have to put yourself into play can easily lead to, to injuries. So health insurance has always been a, a huge priority for orchestral musicians. And so they, you know, they, they've been able to achieve through the years some pretty decent health insurance benefits for most orchestras. And that's that's always a, a contentious issue in negotiations because you'll have, say, you know, members of the board of directors who see your health plans and they go, oh, my God, I, my company doesn't offer that. Yeah. Well, there's a reason, you know, there's, um, you know, musicians had to to get those plans in place to give themselves decent health care. There's also, you know, some practical trade-offs that happened over the years where there wasn't money to give people a raise. So they did their best to improve their benefits package. So that's a that's a huge issue. Then there's I would say the bulk of any contract contains all of the work rules for performing. You know how long the rehearsals are, how long the concerts are, when they they can be scheduled, when's the break. You know all all sorts of you know kind of minutia 
about how the orchestra has to operate. And it may seem like overkill, but it really isn't. There's a reason for each one of those provisions. And the reason is usually to put the musicians in the best position possible to perform at their peak level. So for instance, you know, rehearsals are limited to usually two and a half hours and there's only a certain number of them per week because if you overwork the musicians, they're going to get injured and they're not going to play well. You know, so all of those rules that have sprung up over the years are designed for that. Um, that said, they change, they evolve constantly. And, you know, <laughs> these days yeah, is a great of- example of that as we go through the pandemic and figure out just how the heck we're going to perform. Yeah. Um, and then I, I had a, I think it was uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Mike Musitsky, he's a bassoon player with the orchestra. He sort of explained to me one time that, that a CBA is basically 40 years of all the problems that ever happened in an orchestra combined into one document, which I think is a very accurate description of it because you'll find things in there that's like very specific, like you can do this, but you can't do this in terms of like timings of rehearsals and stuff like that. And it's obvious that at some point in time, you know, 20 some odd years ago, there was some issue that came up and they had it injected into the document. And usually that stuff doesn't come out unless someone really goes through and like siphons, you know, there's a, yep. there's another specific problem that comes up that that comes into you know play with that kind of that, those kinds of things. Yeah, so much of it is addressing something that happened once, right? <laughs> Either something that that the management did that musicians really hated, and so they bargained to fix it, or something that some musician did that management really hated, and so they try to fix that for the future too. Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a lot of that that goes on. Yeah, and then another thing that you didn't touch on is uh, also like the size of the orchestra. That's mm-hmm. that's generally oh, yeah. the size of the orchestra. And you mentioned uh, earlier the audition practice. And I know in, in ours, it's very specific uh, how right. the audition process works. And I imagine in pretty much every orchestra, it's very specific. Yeah, there are oh, often many pages of the contract devoted to the audition procedures. Um, again, the, the whole goal is to be fair and get the best person. Uh, in terms of the size of the orchestra, I mean, that's a little unique to union contracts, because if you think about, you know, auto workers or, you know, nurses at a hospital or something or teachers, they, they usually don't specify a number of people. You know, basically the employer gets to determine how many people they need and they hire however many they need and they work under the contract. But orchestras have a complement number. You know, you have to hire a minimum of X musicians. And that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's there. There are a lot of orchestras that are playing with too few musicians, just because the resources often aren't there. Um, and you can tell. I mean, that you know, everybody does their absolute best, but man, there's there's a real difference between a seventy-person orchestra and a ninety-person orchestra. You can hear it. Mm-hmm. You know, and then also, if you're playing with too few musicians, they can sometimes overcompensate for the lack of numbers and injure themselves that way or there's no way to kind of rotate them in and out you know when somebody needs a day off so everyone is working all the time and they can get injured you know so that's another place that uh you know becomes a focal point of negotiations especially because it's it's a big expense to add musicians you know their salary and their benefits package you know when when you propose adding musicians, 
generally it's you can you can see the other side go uh oh yeah yeah you can see the dollar <laughs> signs they're, they're, falling yeah, out of their mouth they see how much it's going to cost but <laughs> that said you know there you know the, often there's sort of an us versus them mentality that springs up and it doesn't really need at the time because everybody has the same goal in the end they want to put a great orchestra out there and they want to attract musicians um, there's just different ways of getting there and different priorities that people have. So I think in in the eyes of most managers and, and boards, they would love to have 90 or 95 musicians in their orchestra, but they just can't figure out how they're going to pay for them. And, you know, so you have some conflicts over that. But it's it's a it's a constant struggle to try to keep that number up because it makes a huge difference. Yeah, for sure. And I think the point that you made specifically is injury prevention. I mean, it's just you know, especially in string playing. I mean, the the ability to, to, to rotate some strings on and off, I know, is is, is huge for them and just yeah. their, their 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 longevity in terms of their careers. And just, you know, uh, you talk about, like, expense. I mean, a lot of times, uh, I mean, I've seen countless string players and wind players go out with various uh, performance-related in- injuries, and those expenses add up as well. So if you're constantly having to pay, you know, disability or whatever, so there's a whole whole mess of things that goes into all this stuff and it's it's a it's definitely a puzzle to figure out sort of what's what's the the right road to take i think when you get into these negotiations yeah and there's you know there's a real crucial part of this about making these people full-time musicians because i there are are i walk into some situations where you know board members who work with their own workforce they have an idea of you, you never hire more people than you need for a particular task. And, and that makes perfect sense from a business perspective. You know, so they see an orchestra and they say, well, um, you know, if there's a Mozart symphony, we only need 45 people. And then if we do a Mahler symphony, we need 80. So why not just hire 45 full time and then hire, you know, temps when we have to do a Mahler? I mean, and from a pure business perspective, yeah, that makes that makes sense. You're you're saving on labor costs. You're you're only paying for exactly what you need. But from an artistic standpoint, and from the standpoint of you know the the mission of the organization to present great symphonic music, it's not going to work. Right. Right. And you know you can use a lot of analogies, but I, I think as a as a Bears fan who um, had to endure some recent field goal disasters in the last few years, you know, your field goal kicker is not always going to do a whole lot every game, you know, but you want the best one when they're called on. Yeah. You know, you don't want to say, well, okay, we'll, we'll go without it. And then if, if we need, need to, you know, kick a field goal, we'll see who's out there and we'll bring him in for the afternoon. You know, no, I mean, you, you got to hire, you know, the best people. So you always have them. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. That's a very good analogy for me being from Chicago as well. I definitely uh, know specifically (laughs) what you're talking about. Um, Though actually being a Colts fan and watching Vinatieri last year wasn't exactly the best thing in the world. (laughs) so that's awesome, Kevin. Thanks so much for all that uh, the great insight on that. Uh, so let's get into some of the COVID-specific things. I know you've been uh, busy at work this summer uh, sort of reinventing a lot of these CBAs because obviously the biggest thing to change, aside from all the financial impacts that that, that it's had, um, but of course the work rules are totally just thrown out the window because you just can't gather people like you used to. So can you can you talk about sort of like, you know, what, what things orchestras have done to kind of, figure out figure their way through this kind of time yeah it's it's kind of gone in phases you know in in march 
when everything got pretty much shut down, orchestras shut down too, and then just really nothing happened. Um, over the summer, then people started thinking about ways to perform. You know, how can we still connect with audiences? How can we put something out there? Because of course, the, the mission of the orchestra still stands. You know, the whole goal is to present great music to your your community. Um, and if there's a way to do it safely, then we should explore it. So a lot of thought went into that and a lot of discussions between committees and, and managements and me um, trying to come up with, you know, solutions here because you can't put a full orchestra on stage and whatever musicians you do put up there have to be distanced and wearing masks, which is a problem for winds and brass because they can't wear masks when they're playing. Um, and then you have restrictions on audience size too. So, you know, everything kind of had to be reinvented here. So, you know, digital concert series have really become a thing, right? I mean, media has always been a part of music. You know, there's always been recordings um, from, you know, the, the great old LPs to the, you know, when the, the industry, when CDs came into vogue, kind of went on a recording binge and just re-recorded everything to CDs. And then it kind of went to streaming and then dried up a little bit. But now it's like, okay, well, this may be the only way we have. So audiovisual streaming is now just this incredibly new and vital medium. And orchestras are, you know, really trying to figure out how to make the best of it. And a lot of creative minds are working on it and they're doing a lot of trial and error. Um, but things, you know, boy, we're not set up for that. So a lot of adjustments need to be made. Plus the, um, sa the safety conditions that have to be in place, safety protocols for musicians, which has changed everything from, you know, the length of time that people can be in a building because clearly the less time you're indoors, the less risk to, you know, who can be played and who's at risk and who isn't, you know, it's, there's, um, just basically just have to come up with a bunch of new work rules from scratch mm -hmm. to fit this kind of new paradigm. And we don't really even know how long this new paradigm is going to last or how it's going to work. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's constantly evolving. And I, I expect that over the next even six months, there'll just be adjustment after adjustment as we try to make the best of things. Yeah, and I think obviously the number one goal is to keep everyone safe, right? Um, aside from yeah. presenting music, I mean, the priority number one is make sure people don't get sick. Um, but there's also another challenge, which we didn't talk about in the regular CBA, which is like the media agreements. Can you maybe briefly mm -hmm. touch on that? Because that's something that I I don't understand at all. So, uh, Well, yeah, I mean, because it's really complicated. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I mentioned that the CBA is, is between the orchestra and the AFM local. Mm -hmm. Right. So that each orchestra has its own CBA. It's a local agreement. Now, media, on the other hand, because it's it's not confined to the local jurisdiction, you know, especially streaming, of course, is global. The agreements regarding media are with the National American Federation of Musicians. So, you know, and, and but the AFM has spent a lot of time talking to employers and trying to come up with agreements that can cover this. And and they have, um, and you know, really difficult negotiations because of of course what um, employers would love to do is just basically 
do as much media as they want anytime and not have to pay any extra for it because they figure they're already paying the musicians. But for the musicians, this is their product. They're putting it out there. So it has value. It needs to be worth something. And so that's, you know, been a, a big bone of contention for many years. But, you know, the AFM and employers have hammered out some pretty good agreements. Um, now, those agreements, though, were generally based on recordings of live performance with audience and generally audio performances that would either just be streamed on a website or on the radio. So, you know, after, when COVID hit and it looks like what we're going to be doing is presenting um, basically audiovisual content, you know, streamed, you know, visually streamed concerts with no audience, there really wasn't a paradigm for that. There's, you know, that's really not covered by the media agreements. And if, if you tried to shoehorn it in, it would be tremendously expensive. So the AFM did a lot of work with the employers um, and you know, Ixam, the group that I am general counsel for, participate in that as well, you know, to try to come up with a modification that would fit the COVID era. And eventually they did. So it's, uh, you know, it's a uh, it's an agreement that allows employers who are compensating their musicians during this time to get a, a really significant amount of just free media, which everybody recognizes is a good thing mm -hmm. these days. So it's it's kind of a win win. The employers are able to do what they want with media. Musicians, you know, have some security because the agreement incentivizes employers to pay them during this time. Um, so people seem fairly happy with it. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, that actually gives me a lot better understanding of, of uh, the the point about how the media is global and and the performances are local. That 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 made a lot of sense to me. Why it has to be such a separate entity? The the line is not always clear though. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> sure. Sometimes there are disputes over that and a lot of discussion. Yeah. But the the general philosophy is the local versus uh, national or global. Yeah. Well, really cool. Uh, so how many groups of musicians, do you, I know you, you work with us, uh, you have mm -hmm. probably like five years, I want to say, does that sound about right? Yeah. 2016 was, um, when I first started working with y'all. Yeah. So, so us, and then how many, how many groups do you represent? Cause I know you're, you've got a pretty robust schedule. Yeah, I mean, I, I counted up at one point over the summer because basically every group that I work with was either renegotiating or negotiating a new agreement to fit the COVID era. And I counted 22 oh orchestras <laughs> at, at one point. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, there's a lot. And in a normal year, of course, I don't do nearly that many because I, I work on contracts that expire. They're usually like three or four year contracts, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes shorter, sometimes longer. And so when they expire is when the negotiations happen. And I usually have six or eight of those a year. Um, say they can be, you know, short or long and drawn out, but that's the general number. This last summer, though, was nuts, you know, and I'm right. doing like, you know, over 20 to try to figure out how to modify their contracts for uh, the future. Um, now, some of those were more simple modifications, like a, an across-the-board pay cut, um, but most of them had, you know, a lot of work rule modifications and safety protocols and all of that. You know, so I have a pretty good view of what's going on in the orchestra <laughs> world just from the groups that I work with. Yeah, you you got like half the uh, half the Ixam groups. <laughs> like, yeah, twenty two. That's about half. Um, 
I think. There, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, maybe that can be a goal for you. Make sure you get the exactly 50%. Build that monopoly up. <laughs> so yeah, I want the justice department will break me up. Yeah, there you go. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about yourself and your career and sort of how you ended up at this point. Cause, uh, it's my understanding that you had a rather prolific performance career before you, uh, went to law school and became a, a labor attorney. So can you, you know, briefly give us a little background on, on yourself? Well, I, I did my best, right? <laughs> <laughs> we <laughs> all know? try so, to. So I was, yeah, I was a violinist, and I went to uh, Eastman, graduated from there. Um, I had a number of jobs in the orchestral world. I, I started off with the Rochester Philharmonic, uh, then I was the concertmaster in Memphis for a few years. Uh, I moved up to Chicago, and I was a member of the Grand Park Orchestra, which plays in the summers downtown. And I played with uh, the Lyric Opera, and I subbed with Chicago Symphony, and had a had a fun freelance career going on there for a while. Um, and you know, I I love playing the violin. You know, there's no getting around it. But making a living as a musician is not always easy. And you know, if if you get one of those, you know, full time orchestra jobs, then it's pretty secure. But you know, being a freelancer, which is what I ended up doing, is as much as I was seemed like I was always busy and I was doing all right. I, I was looking ahead, and you know, saying, "Is this really what I want to be doing for the next 30, 40 years?" And there's something else that my my mind wants to focus on. And I got elected to the orchestra committee in Grand Park and became chair of the committee and participated in some contract negotiations and just general committee work. I said, wow, you know, I like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like I'm making a difference. I feel like I'm helping musicians, you know, make a living, improving their terms and conditions of employment, just making life better for musicians. And I said, maybe I should do this. <laughs> yeah. So um, I went to law school and I, I wasn't necessarily sure that that was what I was going to do. I, I went to law school the way you're not supposed to go to law school, right? You know, you're not supposed to go to law school saying, well, let's see if I like it. You're supposed to go because you've decided you want right. to be a lawyer. Yeah. So I did it wrong, but it ended up all right because I really I took to it. I really liked law school and I, I got a good job out of law school for a you know big firm in Chicago and spent you know several years there kind of getting seasoned. And then I went out on my own and, um, you know, uh, I've been doing this practice now for about 10 years where I decided just to focus almost exclusively on classical musicians and their needs, their their problems. Wow, that's fantastic, Kevin. And uh, I think you might be the only person in the world who got elected to committee and said, "Wow, I really like this." <laughs> so, so it's probably a good good thing that you are uh, in the position you're in, and I know that uh, you've been a very valuable asset to us and 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 to other people as well. So um, we need more people like you to to go to law school and 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 help us all out. Um, well, I like doing. I mean, the best part of my job is I get to. Well, until recently, I get to go all over the country mm-hmm. and hang out with musicians. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, and if I do my job right, I help them stay employed and make their lives a little better. Yeah. So, you know, I feel good about the work that I'm doing and I enjoy it. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so other than CBA negotiations and working with orchestras, I know you have a little bit of a, a, a portfolio of sort of what you can do. Uh, are you involved with like individual contract negotiations for musicians? Do you do any of that kind of work? Yeah, I probably used to do more of that before I got more more focused on and the union work and getting so many clients. Um, 
where I would do some individual contracts for musicians, like principal player contracts and big orchestras, mm-hmm. um, or their artist management agreements, or occasionally recording agreement to look at, and, you know, some a little light IP work, you know, some copyright advice um, on occasion, that kind of thing. Um, but I also, as you know, since I'm in Chicago, I represent um, the AFM local here, local 10208, the mm-hmm. Chicago Federation of Musicians, which is a very large local and they have a lot going on. So there's a ton of theater stuff, um, you know, basically all, all this, you know, the matters that come up in the local. So I deal with that here. Um, so that, you know, can take a little, uh, you know, there's a little diversion from the pure orchestra work at times. Mm-hmm. I was a former proud member of uh, local 10208 Chicago. That was my first yeah. uh, union. I, I, let's see, I've been there. I've been in, I don't know if I was ever a member of the Richmond local, but definitely there mm-hmm. in Indianapolis. So, um, yeah, that my, my first uh, local was local five in Detroit when I was 16. Oh, cool. Wow. Good for you. Um, yeah, but the, uh, the Chicago one is huge, man. That's a great, I, I loved being a part of that, that group. Cause the, uh, the theater musicians are amazing. That's, that's who I, mostly interacted with there because that's oh, cool. before I yeah. got in orchestras, I was, uh, I played in, uh, you know, uh, Broadway Chicago and stuff like that. Um, yeah. but yeah, the great, great people there, tremendous leadership. Uh, and obviously, you know, they're all their, uh, full-time orchestras are phenomenal. So it's a, it's a really, you know, I'd say probably it's one of the best, uh, locals to be a part of uh, the, other than like LA and New York. I think those are probably the three, the three big ones. Yeah. Well, and Nashville, you know, they're, oh, of course. So those, those are like kind of like the big ones, but, um, yeah, Chicago just has a ton of variety of stuff going on. Yeah. You know, um, small orchestras, large orchestras, theater recordings, you know, you name it. <laughs> so, yeah. And of course, opera as well, because one of the premier opera companies is in Chicago. Yeah. And I'm assuming too, like a uh, live touring shows that come through, like the big arena shows, I'm sure that that involves the local, um, uh, some yeah. part of the time at least no well, i used to play those too yeah, yeah. there you and, go uh, Bo- bocelli would come into town at the all-state arena yeah so, know, so what's ten thousand screaming fans so, so now that we're out <laughs> off on a little tangent what is like your most memorable show not necessarily like your your uh most artistically fulfilling but like your most memorable concert as a violinist most memorable yeah oh boy you know <laughs> it wasn't really a concert so when i was in memphis there was a a hole in the wall bar, and it, it was a dive. I mean, there's no getting ready. It yeah. was definitely <laughs> a dive, and it was where you know a pretty wide variety of of people showed up. It had an artistic flair, and a lot of the journalists um, from you know the local papers came there too. Um, you know, occasionally a fight would break out, or somebody would throw a you know a mug of beer at the mirror behind the bar. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but the owner there this incredible woman named Wanda Wilson. Um, she loved music. She loved the Memphis Symphony. She loved uh, musicians. And so we worked out an arrangement where we would occasionally play chamber music. Uh-huh. And so I'd get a quartet in there. Or once uh, there was an old upright piano, we did the Schubert Trout Quintet. Uh-huh. Um, but it was just really a chance just to sit in this dive bar for people drinking beer, who some of them knew nothing about music, and just have a good time. And I have never played better in my life. Right. I mean, I'm sitting there reading, you know, string quartet parts, you know, that are really difficult and I'm just nailing it (laughs) because it's just fun. Yeah. 
it was just the most fun I've ever had as a musician, you know, and, you know, and so when it comes to memorable, you know, to me, that is, you know, yeah, I've, I've played, you know, concertos and, you know, some good solo recitals and such, but something about the, uh, reading chamber music in a dive bar in Memphis that has stuck with me all these years. There you go. And I'm sure uh, if, if it was, well, depending on the time frame, I'm sure the bar was probably filled with cigarette smoke as well. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah, it certainly was. <laughs> yeah, not anymore, but probably back then. Um, uh, so, right. so, uh, all right, so that was fun. That was a fun little tangent, but I think we should probably get back to our topic <laughs> at hand. Um, <laughs> so what do you do in your role? So you're the Ixom general counsel. That's like your title with, uh, Ixom. So what, what do you do in that role? Are you just, is it just like an advisory role? Do you, uh, 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 work for them consistently and on, on issues or sort of what is it? What well, is yeah. Your, yeah. Maybe first a little, little background on kind of what Ixom is. Sure. So, you know, the, the American Federation of Musicians is the national union with the local chapters that represent musicians. But within the AFM, there are what are called player conferences. And they're kind of like these intermediate bodies that represent particular sectors. Because, I mean, the AFM represents musicians of all kinds. And, you know, it's easy for particular sectors to kind of get lost in the, in the mix. So you've got a Recording Musicians Association. You mentioned the Theater Musicians Association. And Ixon represents like the 52 largest uh, orchestras in, in the U.S. And the point of Ixom is, um, you know, to advocate within the AFM, of course, for orchestral interests, but also to share information among orchestras, um, advocate for musicians' interests across the whole industry, and basically just try to, to better the lives of orchestral musicians. And we have a conference every year that goes for several days where there's a lot of information presented and a lot of back and forth communications between the musicians so everybody knows what's going on in other orchestras and they get ideas and they get inspired. So it's it's a great organization. Um, and as, as general counsel, it's, um, you know, the, the, I think the key word is counsel. I mean, it's, the, it's a job where my... F- primary function is to be a counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, so the ICSM has an elected governing board and I work with them very closely and, you know, we, you know, together try to, you know, find the best solutions to the problem that the industry faces, um, which was definitely um, active this summer. Yeah. You know, ICSM felt a real obligation to respond to COVID and do what we could for our members and so the governing board spent a ton of time, you know, trying to come up with the best information for people, having lots of Zoom meetings. We held our conference virtually this year because we had to mm-hmm. um, and, you know, brought in, you know, epidemiologists to talk to people. Um, you know, we're just a lot of activity, all of all geared towards basically just trying to improve the fortunes of orchestral musicians and right now protect them. Mm-hmm. So my role is to, um, you know, give advice on all kinds of legal aspects. And so the, you know, the labor, labor law issues, things that come up in, in my orchestras that come up in other orchestras, I give advice on. Um, it also gives me a, a, well, a really good kind of bird's eye view of what's happening in the industry, because there's basically nothing of significance that happens in an Ixom orchestra without Ixom knowing about it. Therefore I know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a great vantage point to see what's happening. Yeah. 
That's awesome, Kevin. And I know they're uh, they're obviously very lucky to have you. I've I've really enjoyed working with you um, for the last uh, whatever it's been six months or whatever we've been trying to. Work. But um, yeah. Uh, so before you leave, I always give my guests an opportunity for any last words, shout outs, pieces of advice, or words of wisdom. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't know if I have any wisdom. I do the best I can to advise people. But, you know, we're, we're looking at a, at a difficult time here with, with COVID. It's, it's really affecting musicians and not just the, the musicians who work under collective bargaining agreements because they're, they're actually better protected than most. And I've been able to, to actually get agreements in most places where they're, they're still getting compensated and they're still working. But then, you know, you have freelance musicians. I used to be one. Mm-hmm. And um, man, that's that's tough. But I just, you know, I, I try to encourage people not to give up, you know, that there's there is desire in society for music. It's still there. It's not going to go away. And I'm really looking forward to the day when we can get together again. And I think there's going to be a hunger to see and hear musicians in person. And, um, you know, whenever things uh, start looking a little bleak, I just try to look forward to that day. And I encourage musicians to look forward to that day, too, because they've got something that's important and they need to preserve it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. That's a that's a beautifully beautiful way of, of putting that. Uh, I, I do have one more thing for you, which is uh, the next time you're in Indianapolis, and uh, we we sign a long term agreement. What are uh, where are we going to dinner? What are we doing? Ooh, okay, yeah. I mean, you know, every time I've been there, we've just gone uh, to places by the hall. So you're going to have to introduce me to something. Okay. Oh, uh, are you are you a steak? Steak, uh, steak. We got like a million steakhouses, so maybe that's the default. Okay, that always works for okay. me. I mean, I, I'm kind of a uh, omnivore, so you know, basically, if if it's food, I will eat it and I will enjoy it. Um, but steak is always good. <laughs> And I'm, yeah, I'm really I'm looking forward to being able to hang out with you guys again. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I mean, uh, you've you've done great work on the committee. Your colleagues are doing great work. They're really committed. Yeah. And I'm really uh, keep my fingers crossed we can you know, get to a good long term solution there. Yeah, I'm I'm confident we can, and uh, we definitely have a great community. And I know uh, speaking of that thirst for music, I am just chomping at the bit to get back on that concert all stage to tell you that much. And I know our audiences as well. And I know people across the country feel the same way. So Kevin, uh, thank you so much for your time. It's, it's uh, really been incredible to talk to you and, and, and uh, reveal all this knowledge. I'm sure my listeners uh, or our listeners will, uh, you know, be really enlightened by all this stuff. And I think that it's, it's, it's things that aren't really talked about when you're in music school. Like nobody knows what a CBA is. You just know how to play your instrument. And so these are very important things as you get going in the industry to, to be knowledgeable about and to be aware of. So I think that, uh, having you on here is, is been a great thing. So thank you for that. Well, Sam, thanks for having me on. I'm happy to come back anytime. Absolutely. Uh, so for our new listeners out there, please make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at the Candy Clarinetist, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitch at twitch.tv slash the Candy Clarinetist. You can also find links to all of these things as well as information about myself and the podcast at candidclarinetistpodcast.com. Once again, I am Sam Rothstein and thanks for tuning into the Candy Clarinetist podcast. <laughs>